Well, friends, good morning to you all, and it is with sincerity that I greet you as friends, because I trust that's what we have become over this weekend. It really has been a joy for me to be with you. Uh, It's been such an encouragement to see your love for the Lord, your zeal for His cause and His glory, your desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, your passion for his word, and, and so it's been a tremendous encouragement to me, a tremendous edification to me to be among you. So thank you for the privilege and for the opportunity. I would like to ask you to join me in a word of prayer before we come to the word of our Lord. Father in heaven, we love you because you first loved us. And as we have just been singing, and as we have been reminded throughout the the service and the reading of your word, it is a great and a gracious love that you have for us. It's so great that you did not withhold from us the most precious gift that you could give us, your very own son, who came and died in our stead. And at the same time, it's a gracious love because there is no merit in us that would make us lovely to you. There is no goodness in us that would earn your affection. But it's simply that Christ died for the ungodly because you have set your love on us in your sovereign choice to be gracious to us and merciful to us. But Father, as we receive this gracious love, we pray that we would return it in the form of worship and obedience. And so now work in us, Lord, both to will and to work for your good pleasure. Sanctify us by this word of truth so that you might make us what you desire to see in us. Make us a people who are holy, just as you are holy. And so now give us the grace for our minds, give us the grace for our hearts, that we might come and receive through your word and through the ministry of your spirit all that we have asked, and yet still more beyond what we can ask or think or imagine, for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. Friends, I want to ask you to indulge me in an exercise. I want you to imagine for a moment how you would set about evangelizing a group of lost people. Not just any group of lost people, I want you to do your best to imagine a group that is the worst imaginable group that you can think of. So for a moment, don't verbalize it, but just in your own mind, consider the scoundrels and the scallywags that you can think of. The worst stereotypes, those who you might humanly speaking think of as beyond any hope of redemption. That group of people that you would think there is no chance of them ever darkening the doorstep of a church. There is no scenario in which you can imagine them ever coming to love and follow our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of all of those that are prone to violence, those that are prone to sexual deviancy. Perhaps in your mind you have a group of politicians, whatever it is. Think of the scoundrels and the scallywags and imagine that they've all been grouped together and placed on an island. And it is your task to go and plant a church and evangelize the people of this island. How would you go about doing that? What would be your methodology? What would be your approach to reaching this island full of the most unreachable people with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so they might come to know him 
and love him and continue to spread the good news about him. Well, as you have that in your mind, I want to let you know that this is not so far a scenario that it's unrealistic because it's the very scenario that the Apostle Paul himself faced when he preached the gospel on the Isle of Crete. It was, in his day and age, an island filled with all the scoundrels and the scallywags and the misfits and the miscreants of his era. In fact, we read in Titus chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul saying this about the people, one of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then just for emphasis, adds in the following verse, this testimony is true. Now, I always get a chuckle out of this because my mom's side of the family is actually from Crete. So, I am a Cretan before you here in the flesh. But what an incredible task Paul had before him to evangelize this group of people, to see a church planted among this people that would then shine a light into the rest of the island and see the gospel continue to spread among the most unlikely of people. And as I ask you to begin turning in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2, what I want you to start thinking about already is that there is a wonderful benefit to us having this letter written to the scoundrels and the scallywags of Paul's day. Because as we focus our minds on the text before us today, which is going to draw our attention to the priorities that a church should be pursuing if they are going to have an impact in the culture around them for the glory of their God, we know that if this was the strategy that Paul employed among these people, that surely it's a strategy worthy of our consideration Surely it's a strategy that we should be pursuing ourselves. Because contrary to all of the church growth gurus, unlike all of the books that fill those bookshelves in the stores, this one is the only one that is endorsed by God. This strategy that we're going to focus on and learn about today is the only strategy that has the divine seal of approval because it is found within Scripture and it is to us tested and tried by the Apostle Paul among the scoundrels and the scallywags and shown to be effective. Really, friends, what this strategy boils down to is that the church should be focusing on Sound doctrine and holy living. That's it. It's not profound except for its simplicity. We as God's people, we as a local church should be focusing on sound doctrine and holy living. Or to put it another way, we should be a people who love the truth and who wholeheartedly pursue obedience to our God. In fact, that's something of the summation of the entire book that Paul wrote to Titus. Titus 1 is all about finding qualified and capable elders who will teach this sound doctrine and who will refute any error that arises. Chapter 2 is all about practical application of this sound doctrine It's about teaching practical living in light of the truth. And chapter 3 is the outflow of this all into good works. Good works external to the church as they are among unbelievers and good works internal to the church as they are toward one another. But notice none of this is about eloquence or persuasiveness. None of this is about 
giftedness or the extravagance of having extroverts and confidence in your cultural linguistics. None of this is about being emergent or missional or young, restless or reformed. This entire letter is a call for us as God's people and a reminder for us as the church of our Lord Jesus Christ that if we are going to be effective in our mission of making disciples in a lost world around us, it's not going to be by looking at the world and looking at the culture and trying to emphasize to them how much alike we are and how much common ground we share, but the very opposite. It's about how unlike them we are, how different we are, because we love the truth and we love to walk in obedience to our God. 1 Peter 3.15 is always one of great importance for us to consider when it says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Friends, he assumes that people will see that there is a hope in you such that they will ask you about it when their life is falling apart because yours doesn't look like theirs. Yours looks different. And the very point of the text that we're going to be studying today is that the way that they see the difference is because they see your obedience. They see your love for the Lord, for His truth, for the holiness of that we pursue as we pursue Him. This is the foundation that I want you to consider as we come to our text in Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 to 14. Here in these verses, we're going to see Paul laying a theological foundation for holy living. Because even if this is the priority that we should be pursuing, even if this is the key to the effectiveness of our gospel witness, the trouble is if we hear the call to be holy, even as our God is holy, as a call to dig down deep into our own self-reliance, it will result in nothing other than despair and utter failure. Do not hear, friends, from me today the call to be holy, the call to be obedient as one to, metaphorically speaking, pull up your socks and do better, try harder. If we are to be holy, if we are to be obedient, then we need and are utterly dependent upon the grace of our God. So Paul grounds his expectations for holy living in the grace of God. And so as we come to Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14, we're going to see three operations of the grace of God. Three operations of the grace of God that will equip you for holy living. With that, let's turn then to Titus 2 and Let's read the text that we will be studying this morning, verses 11 down to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that, denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Now, Paul begins this instruction, this wonderful gospel summation that will tell us how the grace of God works to equip us in holy living with this connective word for this conjunction that, of course, you know, in a church that highly prizes the exposition of God's word, 
That conjunction reminds us that this is part of a larger flow of thought that Paul has. And so it links us back all the way to verse 1 down to verse 10 of Titus chapter 2. He's talking about how we should live in light of sound doctrine. As we have elders who teach and preach the truth, that truth ought to affect the way that we live. And that's exactly the practical instruction that Paul has given in the first 10 verses of this chapter. But now he links it into the power to do that. The means by which we will have the ability to do that. How will our lives change? Not by our own effort, but by this grace of God that we read about in verse 11. When we talk about the grace of God, we're talking about the fact that God has this beneficent disposition towards his people. He has a kindness in his heart towards those that he has chosen. A love and a favor towards his elect. That has nothing to do at all with their worthiness or unworthiness. His decision to be gracious to you as a believer in Jesus Christ it's not based on any good that he sees in you, but based entirely on the goodness that he has in his heart toward you. And this is called the grace of God. Paul himself had great personal experience with this grace of God. We read, for instance, in 1 Timothy 1.13, he says, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It's not only Paul who would experience that grace, but he says in 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So Paul draws our attention to the fact that God is gracious to us as his people. He had experienced it, the church in Crete had experienced it, and I trust all of us here have an experience of this grace of God. But there's a particular expression of this grace of God because the text before us says that this grace of God has appeared. And the word he chooses to use to describe this appearance is one that means to shine in a dark place to become manifest and to become gloriously visible of course we know that if the grace of god is going to come and become gloriously visible paul is clearly referencing the incarnation of our lord jesus christ so this is a wonderful way in which he draws on the language of the grace of god and how it is made manifest in our Lord Jesus Christ. How it reaches the pinnacle of its expression as Christ takes on humanity and comes in his incarnational form to be with us. 1 John 4.2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so we do confess that our Lord Jesus Christ came as a man, fully God and fully man in what we call the incarnation. And this is what Paul doubtless has in mind when he's referring to the grace of God appearing. But friends, I do want you to see that just because this is what he has in mind does not mean that this is what he is emphasizing for us. His choice of words in saying, not that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, but rather the grace of God appeared, means that he is referencing the incarnation, but not emphasizing the incarnation. His emphasis lies upon not what, sorry, his emphasis lies not on who appeared, but on what appeared. His emphasis is on the grace of God. 
And so the first operation that we find of the grace of God is that the grace of God secures our forgiveness. The grace of God secures our forgiveness. And this is exactly what Paul is referring to in the text when it says that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. When he talks about the bringing of salvation, he's referring to the rescue that each one of us needed. We are under the just wrath of God when we stand in our sins. We are rightly condemned as guilty before a holy God, as rebels. And outside of Christ, we have no hope. We have no grounds upon which to approach our God, but he rescues us. This is this exactly what we understand of our condition when it says in Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And yet, we also read later on in Romans 5.9, that much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And so indeed, friends, we are rescued, we are saved through the grace of God in the person of the Son of God. Through the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, He secures our forgiveness. We are justified by His grace. How exactly is it that this grace of God, which brings us forgiveness, equips us in holy living? Well, Paul doesn't directly answer that in our text, but he does in the book of Romans. Again, this great treatise on the gospel, on the grace of God in chapter 6 and verse 5 says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been justified from sin. It is our justification that frees us from our sin Our justification that ensures we are no longer slaves to sin. We are no longer bound to be obedient to our flesh, but are freed to be obedient to our Lord. So the grace of God must operate, friends, firstly to secure our forgiveness if the grace of God is going to equip us to be holy in our living. So as you can imagine that Titus and the church on Crete set out to evangelize the people of Crete and grow as a church, their efforts to do so had to begin with the grace of God operating to secure their forgiveness. If they were going to live holy lives, they were going to be winsome for the gospel. Their holiness had to be empowered by the grace of God and the forgiveness that that secures. Now our text does tell us that the grace of God secures our forgiveness, but as Paul continues in verse 11, he says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. It's important that we not fall into an interpretive trap over here and imagine that Paul is teaching universalism. Paul is not saying that every man and woman created in the image of God is going to be saved. That's false, and we know that from the testimony of Scripture. He's not talking about every single human being ever created, but rather he's talking to every type of man, as he's already been referring to them in the earlier verses of this chapter. Paul has categorized mankind in Titus chapter 2 into various types or categories. Older men and younger men, older woman and younger woman, 
masters and slaves. And from among every category of mankind, the grace of God has appeared to secure forgiveness for all of them. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation, men and women, old and young, rich and poor, slave and free, the grace of God is not limited but flows freely to secure the forgiveness of God's elect. Friends, the grace of God operates not only to secure our forgiveness, but secondly, the grace of God operates to secure our faithfulness. The grace of God operates to secure our faithfulness. And it's this that we read of in verses 12 and 13. There Paul continues that the grace of God is instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as Paul says that the grace of God is here to instruct us, obviously he's referring to all those who are blood-bought and born-again believers, those who have experienced already the grace of God in forgiveness. And so it doesn't instruct those who are not born again. The first step is forgiveness. But for those who are already forgiven, then it secures our faithfulness. This is why Paul is talking about it, instructing us that we should live a certain way He's talking about our renewal. He's talking about our reform. He's talking about the process that theologically we call sanctification. And friends, I don't know about you, but this is one of the most precious aspects of the good news of our Lord that I find from my own heart. It's not just that God sets his love on us when we are unlovable. It's not just that He forgives us in the depths of our sinfulness, but it's also that He does not leave us as He finds us. He changes us. And I am so glad that the grace of God comes to change my heart, even as it will come to change your heart, so that it might slowly but surely make us more like Christ, more obedient, more holy. So we might say that the grace of God operates to secure our faithfulness. This process of change that Paul is describing here is described with words like instruction and teaching and discipline. It's the kinds of words that you, you, you would use to describe the education or the guidance that a parent gives to a child. The point of such discipline is to teach believers how to live lives that are marked by ongoing repentance and faith. But that repentance and faith is grace-empowered. How does the grace of God, though, operate to secure our faithfulness? Well, Paul gives us those details. He does it in three ways. He tells us it's about what we turn from about what we turn to and about how we are motivated. Firstly, he says the grace of God secures our faithfulness by what we turn from. In verse 12, he speaks of us denying ungodliness and worldly desires. This is the process of repentance. It is a turning. It is a changing of hearts that leads to a change of attitude and a change of of action it's an entire heart renewal process but it begins by denying something it begins by turning away from something and the words that paul chooses to use describes us basically saying no to sin we deny it we renounce it we give it up and so there must be a conscious a willful repudiation of all of our thoughts and our words and our actions that are opposed to true godliness. We must deny ungodliness. And ungodliness, friends, just to be clear that we understand it, 
describes both the words and the actions that are contrary to the will and to the character of God. They're ungodly. They're unlike God. They're opposed to His character. So it shouldn't be surprising for us that God's wrath is coming against all ungodliness, as we read in Romans 1.18. But we also are taught to turn away from worldly desires. These are the passions, the lusts of our hearts that produce ungodly actions. The desires that motivate us to make those rebellious choices in what we say and what we do. And together, these un, this ungodliness and these worldly desires speak of all of our sinful attitudes, all of our sinful actions that we must consciously turn away from. But let me be careful to remind you, we must turn away from them, not in our own strength, but in the grace of God. Because as it operates to secure our faithfulness, the first thing it does is it turns us away from our sin. Elsewhere, Paul uses language to describe sanctification, that of putting off and putting on. In Colossians 3, for instance, he says, Therefore, in verse 5, Consider the members of your earthly body to be dead to sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Down in verse 8, he says, But now you also lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you put off the old man with his evil practices. So the grace of God trains us to turn away from sin or to use the other analogy Paul likes, to take off, to put off the fleshly desires and actions that we have. But the grace of God, secondly, as it secures our faithfulness, works to turn us towards something too. It's not just about what we turn from, but what, what we turn to. It's not just about putting off, but about putting on. And that's why he says again in verse 12, of Titus 2, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The word he uses that we have translated as sensibly is one that describes as being self-controlled and thoughtful. It's actually, if you go back and read the entire chapter 2, a theme throughout the chapter, every single age group that Paul addresses is explicitly instructed to live sensibly. Now, in our text, he tells them how. By the grace of God, we are to live self-controlled, thoughtful lives as we consider carefully what it is to be obedient. But not just sensibly, the text says that we should live righteously. We should live in a way that is in accord with God's standards and God's norms. We no longer rebel against God's laws and God's standards, but now we embrace them. And as we live righteously, that is exactly what we are doing. We're also, though, to live godly. And just as we are taught to deny ungodliness, this is now the positive expression. This is the opposite of godliness. This is the description of reverence and respect for God. Whereas ungodliness is words and actions that are rebellious against him, now we have godliness that is words and actions that are honoring of him, that are in accord with God's character and his will. So as we put these together, sensibly, righteously, and godly, one commentator aptly notes that these three refer respectively to oneself to one's relationships with other people, and to one's relationship to God. In other words, we're called to live thoughtful, self-controlled, and upright lives in our dealings with others and with genuine piety in our relationship to God. Paul's using three words to describe a whole person transformation 
in all of our relationships by the grace of God. This again is Paul's put on language elsewhere. In Colossians 3.10 he says, we need to put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. How does the grace of God operate to secure our faithfulness? Well, we also know from Philippians 2 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is exactly what Paul is describing here. As we turn to obedience, as we turn to holiness, know that it is the grace of God that is at work in us to do that very thing. As we both deny ungodliness and embrace godliness, it is God's grace that is securing our faithfulness. And it's the faithfulness that's lived out according to the text in this present age. And those are words that we should not neglect to consider because we are not yet what we will be, friends, in the age to come. There is a time that God will complete this process of sanctification, a time in which our transformation by the grace of God will be complete and we will be perfect in Christlikeness, perfect in holiness. But the grace of God doesn't just operate in the future but in the very present to change us and to transform us, even this very day. But the grace of God does that not just by what we turn from and what we, what we turn to, but how we are motivated to pursue this faithfulness. So Paul continues to tell us that it's got to do with how we are looking in verse 13. We are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is anticipation. That's why some of your translations have the word waiting. There's a sense of anticipation. And there's endurance as we wait with expectation. This looking for Christ is the posture of a dogged, confidence in God and in his sure promises even if in our experience right now they seem far off and remote but it makes sense that we would look for that we would wait for that we would anticipate this blessed hope this happy confidence that we have what exactly is this happy confidence well Translation like the ESV helps us the best because there isn't a second the, there isn't a second definite article in our text. Whereas my translation speaks of the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory. That's really absent there. The ESV translates it to say, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God. This happy confidence we have isn't something separate from the return of Christ, but the happy confidence we have, the blessed hope we have, is the return of Jesus Christ. When he comes back for a second time, his appearing is what we look for. It's a word that Paul uses that lays stress not just on the arrival, but on how resplendent and dazzling and stunning the appearance will be when the arrival takes place. It is the stunning, the dazzling appearance of Christ in all the fullness of his glory. No longer as a humble servant, but as a glorious king that we wait for. And so, no wonder Paul describes Jesus as our great God and Savior. Thanks again to some Greek grammar. We know that this is one of the clearest and most explicit statements of Jesus' divinity. He's not speaking of two separate people. He's not speaking of the return of our great God 
as well as the return of our Savior, but one in the same person, our great God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. And friends, the return of Christ is our motivation to live holy lives. The fact that Jesus is coming and coming back, that is why we walk in obedience. That is why we pursue holiness. The Apostle John in 1 John 2.28 says, And now little children abide in Him, so that when He is manifested, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. Some Christians will, those that are slack in their pursuit of holiness. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. But we know that when He is manifested, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself as he is pure. Can you see the grace of God secures our present day faithfulness? What we turn from, what we turn to by how we are motivated. And we're motivated by the happy and confident expectation that we will see the glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Know this, friends. If you do not love holiness now, you will not love holiness when Jesus returns. So put these all together just to sum it up. The grace of God secures our faithfulness by instructing us, empowering us, enabling us to turn away from sin, to turn toward holiness, and to earnestly wait for Christ's return, which is our motivation. The grace of God, friends, operates to secure our forgiveness, firstly, to secure our faithfulness, secondly. But now, thirdly, and in our final point, the grace of God secures our filiation. The grace of God secures our filiation. Now, on the lighter side of things, I did have to use a big word like filiation because the laws of alliteration demand it. I needed another F word. Our forgiveness, our faithfulness, our filiation. Filiation is a term, though, that is perfectly appropriate. It's got to do with the legal recognition of a parent-child relationship. Obviously, there is filiation between a natural-born child and its parents, but it's also often used to speak of the formalization of the adoption process, where now a child that was a stranger to a family is given the full rights and privileges of being a child in a family. They belong to a father. They belong to a mother. So it's perfectly appropriate that we then speak of how our relationship with God is clarified because verse 14 says that it is Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. When Paul writes of he gave himself for us, obviously he's referring to Christ's substitutionary death for God's elect. Galatians 1.4 speaks of the same. It says, he who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Or Ephesians 5.2, it says, Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ did give himself for us. He did die on the cross, and it's something that we celebrate, his substitutionary death. But Paul gives us then Christ's twin purposes in his death on the cross. It is our redemption and our purification. When he speaks of Christ redeeming us, he speaks of us being purchased back from a state of bondage, from a state of condemnation. To put it in simple terms, we were in trouble and needed to be redeemed because of our lawlessness. We saw earlier how we are called to live lives of righteousness, while lawlessness is the opposite of righteousness. 
It's the flaunting of God's standards and norms. And it's mankind's state as described in Romans 1, 18 and following. This degeneration into depravity. Well, we needed to be redeemed from that very state. The fact that we needed to be redeemed speaks to the fact that we were alienated from God. So we needed to be brought into relationship with him. And as we're purified, as Paul writes, we are reconciled with God. We are brought into special relationship with him, which is why he speaks of him purifying for himself a people for his own possession. To purify speaks of us being cleansed from defilement and to be rendered fit for a new relationship. It speaks of our right status with God. It speaks about our relationship being established and even being restored. And it's highly relational language underscored by the fact that Paul says we are purified for himself. It speaks about ownership. It speaks about belonging. It speaks about interests. Because we are, as the text says, a people for his own possession. We are God's elect, according to Titus 1.1. We are a special, a treasured, and a loved people. The Apostle Peter writes of this in 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of this, friends, is Paul's way of saying and Peter's way of joining him to say that God makes us his own and we are his We are more than slaves. We are children of God. There is a filiation, the recognition of a relationship with God, the recognition of us being the family of God. And it is all secured by the grace of God. That identity, that love from God leads invariably, friends, to a passion, a zeal to do what pleases him. Being sons and daughters of God comes with both rights and obligations, comes with both privileges and responsibilities. And we have a responsibility then to continue to do good works. There is a natural response to God's love and it is a life of being obedient and a life of being Christ-like as we relate to God and to others. So how does the grace of God securing our filiation equip us for holy living? Well, the epitome of holy living is love. Love for God, love for our fellow believers and love for the lost. The grace of God secures our relationship with God and makes us zealous for good works. The very same good works that we read of in our text. These are acts of love, firstly, toward unbelievers. Paul will go on and describe in chapter 3 exactly what that looks like. He says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Just honor no one to be peaceable, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men, for we ourselves also once were foolish. As the grace of God secures our affiliation, our relationship with God, it enables us to live holy lives of love, firstly, with unbelievers. These are some of the good works that we're zealous to perform, but it also enables us to secure relationships of love with fellow believers. Paul will continue in chapter 3, verse 12, to say, When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, be diligent to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way, so that nothing is lacking for them. And our people must also learn 
to lead in good works, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. These good works are acts of love. Love that is born out of the love that we have with God because of our affiliation to God. Because of the relationship we have with Him, we have now renewed relationships with others. With unbelievers and with fellow believers. But friends, this is the grace of God at work to equip us in holy living. How does it do it? Well, as we've studied the text before us today, we've seen that the grace of God works firstly to secure our forgiveness. We cannot live holy lives if we haven't been forgiven for the unholiness of our former lives. But it also works to secure our faithfulness. The grace of God works to turn us away from sin, to turn us toward holiness and to motivate us by the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we will see face to face. And then thirdly, the grace of God secures our affiliation. We're redeemed and we're purified. And as we enjoy a new relationship with God vertically, it spills over into new relationships with unbelievers and believers horizontally. And as we live lives of obedience... As we live holy lives, the world around us will surely take note. Not of how much like them we are, but how unlike them we are. And so as we set out to fulfill the great commission obligation we have to make disciples of all nations, to make disciples here in the city of Cape Town, where you as living hope find yourselves, know that the book of Titus says, the key to doing that is to love truth and to love obedience. The key isn't anything that the gurus would tell you, but rather what Paul tells you. God's strategy for reaching this city is through sound doctrine and holy living as a local church. And what I've reminded you of today is that it is the grace of God that will secure those holy lives that we've been called to live to that end. Let's pray. Our great and our glorious God, there is so much in what we have studied today that causes our hearts to sing in worship because how richly and abundantly we have enjoyed and continue to enjoy the grace of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But even as you are holy, we pray that we would too be holy as obedient children. But let us not try and pursue this in our own strength, but let us look to the grace of God. I want you to secure our forgiveness, secure our faithfulness, and secure our affiliation through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you and effective in our efforts to serve you in the Great Commission. All of this, Father, we pray that you would work in us, through us, for your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.